This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. Glad you could be here. Thanks for braving the rain this morning, which, you know, in Cincinnati is, is a big deal. Cincinnatians are terrified, I think, of rain. So thank you for uh, being willing to be out here uh, this morning. Uh, we are in a series here on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, the aim uh, in this series, and really the aim of all of our time together, is we want to press deeper into the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus. We want to be more like Jesus. And well, what does that look like? Well, the tightest snapshot of this is in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. That's where we are this morning. Patience is something that we all need, and yet something that's really difficult to come by, because we're in a culture that doesn't tend to value patience. We're taught to want everything right now, that we deserve everything right now. That thing we ordered, right, it should be here right now. We need that information right now. We have the computers in our pockets in order to get it, right? Everything trains us to this. Everyone has to weigh in on everything right now. There's not much value in our culture placed on patience or on waiting. Now, that wasn't always the case, right? There used to be some natural opportunities to practice patience built into daily life. You know, when I was growing up, you needed patience if you were going to ask somebody on a date, right? Because the first, like, 10 times you would call, right, nobody would answer, right? There'd be, like, five times nobody was home, right? The, the other five times you get a busy signal because her older sister was on the phone or something like that. And then the 11th time you called and she answered, you'd freeze up because you weren't expecting to actually talk to a real person on the other end of the line. That's how it used to be. Learning to drive used to take patience, right? It wasn't just learning how to operate the vehicle, but at least half of driving uh, or learning to drive when I was a kid when I was 16, was learning how to get unlost, right? This is before cell phones. This is before GPS. And so most of what you were learning was, how do I get back home? And it was an exercise in patience, right? It used to take patience even to get on the internet. Remember, you used to have to dial up and to make that funny sound, you know, at the end. And then the browser would take like 10 minutes to load. ESPN would take another 10 minutes to load. By the time you finally got the Reds box score, you'd eaten up about a half hour of your day. All these things built patience and uh, some capacity for it anyway. It's a little harder to come by today, and we just don't value it. And yet, we know 
that patience is really important. If you're not a patient person, you're likely to be a shallow thinker, right? Not taking much time to reason, to reflect. You're always rushing to judgment. If you're impatient with others, you'll be giving up on people too soon. You'll be jumping ship. You'll be selling others short. If you Don't take the time to cultivate patience in your life. You'll be impulsive, reckless, making bad choices, missing opportunities. And I would bet that everybody in this room has at least a few painful memories where impatience has cost us in some way. Well, James can help. James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he's exhorting this congregation to patience. And as we look at the passage this morning, we're, we're going to look at it by seeing two aspects to patience, two different ways of thinking about patience. And then finally, we're going to talk about how we can cultivate it in our lives. Two aspects to patience, and then how do we, how do we build it in our life? All right, so a- aspect number one, right, this is patience with people, right? And here I mean especially difficult people, challenging people, needy people. The Greek word that James uses here twice in verse 7 and then again in verse 8 is uh, the word makrothemeo, makrothemeo, which used to be translated long-suffering, right? Themeo, suffering, macro, big, right? Long. And I still think that's a pretty good word for it, translation for it. Patience with people, right? If you're going to stay in relationship, in community with people, it's going to take long suffering. There's a silly little poem. It says, To dwell in love with the saints above, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell with the saints we know, ah, that's a different story. <laughs> and I think most of us know that's true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a place in his brilliant little book, Life Together, where he says we have to be realistic about what life with other people involves. He says, relationships are hard. People are hard. And if we allow an idealized view of community to crowd out the the challenges and the reality of relationships in real life, we'll never stick with them. And he says this is especially true in the church. Here's what he says. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. To be in relationship, to be in community with real people, it involves patience, long-suffering. And James gives us the example in verse 7 of a farmer Right? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So what's he saying? He's saying farmers don't plant and then expect an immediate harvest right away. Right? That's not how farmers work. They have to wait. You do all the work, right? You sow the seeds, you till the ground, you weed, you fertilize, but you cannot rush the process. You can't skip the seasons, even though you'd really love to do that. You have to wait for the early rain, for the late rain, for spring and for summer. In other words, you can't make it be June when it's only January. It takes patience to wait for growth. And so it is with people. 
Another word for patience in the New Testament is the word forbearance, which just means to bear with somebody, to bear with someone. Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. And how easy it is to get fed up with each other. But I have to remind myself, God is remaking me and God is remaking you. None of us are finished products, and we can't rush the process. We can't skip the seasons. I can't demand it be June in your life when it's still only January. Christopher Wright put it this way. He said, forbearance is when you choose to forgive people rather than hold a grudge against them. Forbearance is when you choose to overlook something that was hurtful or unkind rather than fighting back with harsh words or making sure you get even with the one who did you wrong. Forbearance is when you learn to be patient with others, mainly because you are very well aware of your own shortcomings and weaknesses. It means you remember that other people are probably also having to be forbearing with you. Now, what's the opposite of this, of patience with others, long-suffering, forbearance. The opposite is grumbling. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble against one another. You know, when people disappoint us, when people frustrate us, you don't usually hate them. I mean, at least not right away, usually, right? But instead, what do you do? You don't usually hate them, but what do you do instead? You roll your eyes, you sigh, right? You, see, you get that ugh feeling when you see them coming your way or you make eye contact. You complain, maybe only internally, and you grumble. And it seems innocent enough. It really is understandable in one respect, but you know what's happening? If you allow that to continue, if you begin to grumble over and over against others, you know what happens? You stop rooting for them. You stop pulling for them. In many cases, you've given up on them. And the grumbling is just a symptom of that or the fruit of that. But the call of God, the call to community, the call to patience is a call to bear with the weaknesses and the failings of others. It's a call to believe in the possibility of change and redemption and healing and growth. It's a call to forgiveness and forbearance long-suffering. And, you know, we get a reminder of this every single week when we come to the Lord's Supper. Because first of all, the Lord's Supper, right, you're reminded, or you should be, of God's patience with us. Right? Every week we come to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of God's patience with us. I'm invited back to this table after the week I've had. That's what we should be saying. The table of God's patience where his grace and his mercy wash over us. Isn't that fuel then to go out and demonstrate patience and kindness to others? But then we also, at the Lord's Supper, we get a visual reminder of our need to bear with one another, 
Because you see, and, and sometimes just do this, sit back for a few moments and, and just watch people streaming up to the Lord's Supper. When you look and really look at these folks, right, you're going to realize there's all kinds of people coming. Some that you naturally get along with, some not so much. Some that you think have great ideas, some that you think have terrible ideas. But here we all are, coming to the same table of grace. We're reminded it's his table, not ours. It's his guest list, not ours. And if you want to be near Jesus, that means you're going to have to be near other people as well, including some that are very difficult for you. It's a call for patience. It's a call to long-suffering. It's a call to forbearance. And so you need patience with people. But then secondly... Fruit of the spirit of patience means patience with circumstances, patience with life, patience with God, you might say, especially when things don't seem to be going well, when there's pressure on in your life, when you can't make sense of why things are happening the way that they're happening. And and the Greek word here in the second half of our passage, it's often translated patience, is the word hypomeno. Meno means to stand, hypo means hyper. So it means to hyperstand, hyperstand in place, to dig in, to be rooted, to be steadfast. And it's battle language. Imagine a general, right, psyching the troops up. Here's where we take our stand, right? We don't give any ground, no retreat. No matter how uh, overwhelming the attack, we don't give ground. Be steadfast. That's the word, hypermeno. James is writing to a people who are under pressure. I know we're just dipping into the epistle this morning, but if we were reading it all in context, you'd see that earlier in the letter, he catalogs some of their difficulties. They've been treated unfairly, especially by those with more power and wealth. They're being persecuted for their faith, and so they're left wondering then, we've been faithful. So why are we having such a hard time? James gives the example of the prophets In verse 10, the prophets, if you read the Old Testament, they spoke the word of the Lord. Very often, though, they were treated unfairly. They were called to be patient in their suffering. And then in verse 11, he gives the quintessential example of patience or steadfastness, Job. Behold, he says, verse 11, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, if you don't know the story, it's one of the larger books in the Old Testament. Most people think maybe the oldest book or the earliest written down of the Hebrew Scriptures. And uh, Job's children and wealth had been wiped away in a big disaster. And if you read the book of Job, it's 42 long chapters of dialogue between he and his friends, and you realize his friends really aren't all that good of friends. But you read this book, and it's very nuanced. It's a very complicated depiction of the psychological and spiritual ups and downs of somebody who's in the midst of their suffering. And so what I want you to know is Job is not static. And so when it says the steadfastness of Job here in in the book of James, know that, that Job had ups and downs. Job had a hard time. One commentator says Job's patience is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. 
Job struggled and questions. But he was steadfast in that he did these things in the presence of the Lord rather than apart from the Lord. What's the steadfastness of Job? Not that he didn't have hard times, not that he didn't struggle, not that he didn't question, but he did these things in the presence of the Lord rather than apart from the Lord. He clung to God even when he couldn't comprehend what God could possibly be doing in his life. He was steadfast in that the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, what I want you to notice here is it's only worth... uh, James saying this, right? Only only worth James bothering with this. If he considered suffering to be a real possibility, maybe even a probability for faithful people. And, And I bring this up because some people really don't believe this. Some Christians don't seem to believe this, or at least they become very surprised when suffering does come into their lives. And some even doctrinally teach that if you're faithful, then suffering won't come. But James is talking to folks who are trying to be faithful, I'm sure imperfectly, but they're trying to be faithful. And James is telling them they need to be prepared. They need the steadfastness of Job. He just presumes suffering can come even to faithful people. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot uh, wrote a book called No Graven Image. I think it's her only novel. She's written tons of books. I think this one is her only novel. I read it uh, last year, maybe the year before, I can't remember, but No Graven Image. It's a story about a missionary woman who goes to the rainforest in Ecuador to translate the Bible into the language of an indigenous tribe. And at the end of the story, everything just sort of comes apart, right? The the contact in the tribe that she had made uh, inexplicably dies, is accidentally killed. She's then expelled from the tribe, and, and the whole thing falls apart. The whole missionary endeavor falls apart. Everything that she had built and worked for and prayed for and hoped for and labored for absolutely crumbles. And when Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, she got all kinds of angry letters. People were saying, you know, God would never treat a faithful person like this. God would never let those sorts of things happen to this missionary woman in your story. In fact, she said that uh, a magazine, prominent Christian magazine, uh, told her that uh, they were lobbied by pastors and other Christian leaders to keep her book off the best books list of that year so that less people would read it because of that same notion. God would never let that happen. But the irony was the novel was pretty much based on what happened to Elizabeth Elliot in real life. She was married to Jim Elliot, one of five young missionaries, the Aka Indians in Ecuador, who were killed after making contact with an unreached tribe. Things seemed to be going well. They were faithful people trying to serve the Lord. They had made contact with this tribe. They were building a relationship, and then inexplicably, they were murdered, and they left behind wives and children. People told Elizabeth Elliot, the things in your novel, God would never let that happen. That was precisely what had happened to her in real life. You don't need the steadfastness of Job if there's no possibility for suffering. But there will be. The book of Job knows this. That's why it's in our Bible. The book of James knows this. That's why in our Bible. Jesus knew this. He tried to prepare his disciples. He said, you will have trouble. You've heard 
of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, which leads us to the last point, right? We need patience with people. We need patience with life, difficult circumstances. How do we grow in this? How do we cultivate the fruit of patience in our life? Three things. First, we need to meditate on the future. We need to meditate on the future. Back to verse 7, beginning of our passage. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, for James, patience is not just a a grin and bear it kind of thing. Just not put your nose down and, and push on. Or rather, patience is tied up with a, a notion of the future. Patience is tied up with the recognition that these hard things, that this pressure is not going to exist forever. Suffering has an end. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. There's an end to our suffering, to our sorrow, to our difficulty, to our disappointment. Frustration and sorrow will one day give way to redemption and joy and healing in the kingdom of God. This is good news. And it can make all the difference in how you handle your difficulty and your suffering now. Imagine two people stuck in the same dead-end job, right? Two people, same job. And just imagine, it's just an awful, mind-numbing, laborious task they have to do. Tough working conditions. It's physically demanding. The boss is terrible. There's no appreciation. Two people, same job. It's just the worst, Right, But worker number one is told that at the end of the week, they're going to be paid $100. Worker number two is told that at the end of the week, they're going to be paid a million dollars. Same terrible job, same difficult conditions, totally different experience of that week, right? Because of the expectation of what will be at the end. You see, patience is predicated on hope. Patience is tied up with hope. You can be patient in suffering when you know and when you believe that suffering is not the end. There's a coming of the Lord. He's bringing his kingdom, and in his kingdom there will be reward, and there will be consolation, and there will be fulfillment in Scripture. We're told the end of the story, and we're meant then to meditate on that in order to grow in the fruit of patience in our life, even in the midst of sorrow and difficulty and suffering. We need to meditate on the future. Secondly, to grow in patience, we need to resist grumbling in the present. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There's a lot of things that can contribute to our grumbling. We talked about some of them already, but we know other things come in as well, right? Anxiety, frustration, We just get worn down, lack of love for others. But the thing that's maybe at the bottom of all our grumbling, you know what it is? It's pride. Pride's at the bottom of all our grumbling. Because what does pride say? Pride says, I know best. Pride says, I know how things should be going. Pride says, I know what I deserve, and I know what you deserve, too. I'm frustrated and I'm angry because I know the way things should be going. I know what I should have. I know what you should have. Pride thinks it's all-knowing. To resist grumbling against God 
You need humility. Here's what Elizabeth Elliot said when she talked about patience, when she talked about steadfastness in the midst of suffering. She says, I dethrone him if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he's up to. You see, humility says, I don't know why this thing is happening to me. I don't like it, right? It's honest. I don't like it, but I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm choosing to wait on the Lord. I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to hyperstand on God's promises. I'm going to stay put with him. I'm going to process these things with him. I'm going to be honest about my pain, but I'm going to do it with him. God is God, and he is worthy of worship, and I'm convinced that he's compassionate, and he's merciful, and even if I can't see that right now, that's where I'm going to stand. That's humility. And Humility, right, to resist grumbling with God, we need humility, but to resist grumbling with others, we also need humility, right? Because humility also says, I don't know what's going on with you. Right? I don't know the story behind how you are and why you do what you do, this thing that frustrates me so much. Life is hard for you too. I don't know the half of what you've been through, I'm sure. And, and so maybe then God will use me, my kindness and my long-suffering and my forbearance and my patience to bless you in your journey. And I'll trust God that he'll give me, supply what I need in order to do that. We need humility. And, and by the way, what's the alternative to this? What's the alternative to this? Right? If we decide we're just going to embrace the grumble, do you know what happens, right? Constant grumbling leads you down a path of self-absorption and cynicism and resentment and hardness and bitterness and anxiety. You know what C.S. Lewis called this? He called this the eternal or the hell of eternal autobiography. That's grumbling. The hell of of eternal autobiography. What does that mean? The hell of eternal autobiography. Everything is about you. It's not fair. I deserve better. I need more. In his novel, The Great Divorce, Lewis tries to portray this. And The Great Divorce, a bus goes down to hell and takes people up to heaven, to the outskirts of heaven. It's fiction, right? He doesn't, this is not how he thinks it really goes, all right? He doesn't think there's actually a bus line between hell and heaven. But, but it, he's trying to portray what happens in the human heart, right? And so in the story, uh, bus goes down to hell, brings people up to the outskirts of heaven, and they're invited to come in, to look around, to, to come into the kingdom of God. And in most cases, they don't. They don't go in. And all throughout the story, there's these two narrators. They're walking around. They're com commenting on the specific cases, the people who are, who are uh, being invited into heaven. And at one point, they encounter a woman from hell who never even hears the invitation to heaven because she won't stop talking. I'll read to you just a little bit. Oh, my dear, I've had such a dreadful time. I don't know how I ever got here at all. I was coming with Eleanor Stone, and we'd arranged to, the whole thing to, to meet at the corner of Sink Street. 
I made it perfectly plain because I knew what she was like. And if I told her once, I told her a thousand times, I would not meet her outside the dreadful Marjorie Banks woman's house, not after the way she'd treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that had happened to me. I'd been dying to tell you because I felt sure you'd tell that I acted rightly. No, wait a moment, dear. I've told you. I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all fixed up. She was to do the cooking. I was to look after the house, and I was going, and it goes on and on and on, right? She keeps talking. I'm reading to you like a third of it. She goes on, and then one of the narrators sees her and sees her not going in, not responding to the invitation to heaven. And he says to the other one, he says, I'm troubled, sir, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort that ought to be even in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who has got into a habit of grumbling. The other one, other narrator says, that's what she once was. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. I should have thought that there was no doubt about that. Aye, but you misunderstand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or now only a grumble. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Even in this life, impatience can make you miserable. Miserable yourself, miserable to be around, self-pity, self-absorption, the, the hell of eternal autobiography, but the bigger danger, Lewis would say, is that it stretches on beyond this life. You lose control at some point. The distinction between you and the grumble fades away. And Lewis says, when that goes on forever, that is hell. James is even more explicit. He says, don't grumble so that you won't be judged. Behold, the judge is at the door. To grow in patience, we need to meditate on the future, the hope of the kingdom of God. There is an end to our suffering. We need to resist the temptation to grumble in the present, to grumble against God or to grumble against each other. But then finally, to grow in the fruit of patience, we need to rest in what Jesus has done in the past. Psalm 77, verse 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. The context of that psalm, Psalm 77, is also similar to what James is talking about there. He's in the midst of, uh, of trials, difficulty, and he says, I'm, I'm going to think about the deeds of the Lord. In the midst of all my trouble, I'm going to process it as I think about who God is and what he's done for me. The psalmist had things he could point back to. No doubt things in his own life, places where God had shown up for him, but even more broadly, he could look at the ways that God had answered the prayers of his people. He set Israel free from slavery in Egypt. He guided them through the wilderness. He led them to the promised land. He had a reason to count up the deeds of the Lord, to remember his deeds of old. But listen, friends, you have even more reason to recount the deeds of the Lord because you live on this side of Jesus coming into the world. As you try to grow in the fruit of patience in your life, you need to recount over and over again what Jesus has done for you. You need to think of the patience of Jesus. When you read the Gospels, right, the disciples were incredibly 
frustrating, right? They're always making mistakes. They're slow to understand. They think about themselves way too much. They fall asleep on Jesus in his most desperate hour. And then Peter goes out and denies that he even knows him. And yet in John 13, verse 1, it says, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Man, that's patience. That's forbearance. That's long-suffering. Or think of Jesus' steadfastness in the midst of sorrow and difficulty and pain. In the Gospel of Luke, it says Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, right? He's resolute. Why did he have to do that? Well, what's in Jerusalem? In Jerusalem is the cross. In Jerusalem is his death. He knows he's marching to a place where he's going to die. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays the cup would pass from him, but then he says, not my will, but yours be done. An honest prayer. I don't like this, but not my will, but yours be done. On the cross, one of the thieves says, aren't you the Christ? Why don't you save yourself and us? And he could have, but he hyperstood. In the place where he was, he stayed on the cross. He was steadfast in his mission to redeem you and to redeem me. And then you need to think of his patience with you. He did all this knowing the ways that you would let him down, all the ways that you would fail him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's patient with you still. He's bearing with you still. He loves you to the end. And so when you see the steadfastness of Jesus, when you see him dying for you, you can wait on him. Knowing that you may never know exactly why these things are happening to you, but you can know that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He has been that way with you. In Jesus Christ, and when you see his patience with you, it gives you power to go out and bear with and suffer long with the weaknesses and failings of those that he's put in your path. Let's pray together, and the band's going to come and lead us in another song, and then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper together. But would you pray with me this morning? Father, we ask, indeed, that you would teach us patience. It's not an easy thing to come by in our world or in our own lives, and we know that's why it's called a fruit of the Spirit. It needs to be supernatural. It needs to be something that you would grow in us, and so we pray as we would get close to Jesus, even this morning as we sing and as we come to the supper, that you would grow the fruit of patience within us. Would you help us even in the midst of our own sorrow and pain and difficulty to wait on you, to trust that you are compassionate and merciful. And then would you help us to bear with others? Give us the humility to know that we don't know all that's going on in the lives of those around us. And so would you give us pity? Would you give us grace and mercy for others? Would you grow this in us even now, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.